Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Amy, and I'm one of the pastors here. And today is Rogation Sunday. It's this extremely old, like 1,500-year-old, and not any more terribly well-known day on the church calendar, but it's one of my personal favorites. So traditionally on Rogation Sunday, a congregation would all process out into the fields, and they would pray right there for the soil and for the harvest and for the farmers. And then sometimes they would actually take sticks and they would walk the whole perimeter of the church's property and they would beat the line. It's called beating the boundary. And kids, you're welcome to try this rogation practice at home today. <laughs> but it was just a way of remembering and marking this geographic area, this little plot of land, is what God has entrusted to us to tend. Now, obviously, this comes from a time when the church owned property, and we don't really know what that's like outside of that white cargo van parked outside that houses our sound equipment. But if we try to think about Rogation Sunday in our own context here at Incarnation, we have to be a little bit creative. Our fields are not any property that the church owns. Our fields are the neighborhoods where all of us live. They're the places where we all work, the houses and the apartments and the condos that we live in, the places where we just live and serve out the days of our lives. But even if those fields look different, I love the way Rogation Sunday helps us imagine this really local way of praying this really local way of thinking about what God is doing in the world. It's a way of saying that this place, this little patch of ground under our feet, it matters. And what we do here with our hands and our bodies and our words, it all matters. It's a way of just declaring that this place and that our lives are the domain that God has given us to cultivate and to bless. This is where we're going to bear witness to God's faithfulness, and this is the place where we're going to see his kingdom breaking through. And I love the way Dallas Willard puts it in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, and I'm almost positive I've quoted this before, but I couldn't find it, so maybe this will be old and maybe this will be new. But he says, where transformation is actually carried out is in our real life, where we dwell. We must accept the circumstances we constantly find ourselves in as the place of God's kingdom and blessing. God has yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. And that's the resounding message of Rogation Sunday, and more importantly, of all of today's scriptures that God is blessing you and me and this community where we actually are, that he actually wants to move in right here and make a home in our lives. And so in John's gospel, which David just read, Jesus says it like this, those who love me will keep my word and my father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Now, if you were here last week, then you might remember that this little section of John's gospel for a few chapters is what we call the farewell discourse. It's where they're all sitting around the table after the Last Supper, and Jesus is telling them what they're going to need to know 
to make sense of everything that's about to happen, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. It's kind of his last chance to say goodbye and to give them what they need. And so today, in this little passage, he's helping them kind of put the pieces together for what it's going to be like to be a disciple when their teacher isn't with them anymore. What is discipleship going to look like when Jesus has gone away? And in this verse, there are two parts to the discipleship. There is our work, and there's God's work. And our work is in that first half of the verse, those who love me will keep my word. Our work is just to love Jesus, and out of that love, to act on his word, to keep his word. And so it's this way of loving, not just with our affections, not just with our feelings, though those are important, but to love Jesus with our lives, to love him with what we do. We bring our lives into agreement with all those words that Jesus taught us, all those words about loving our enemies, about serving the poor and the immigrant and those in prison, about welcoming children and making space for them, all those words about forgiveness way past what seems reasonable, all those words about praying in non-flashy ways, about not putting heavy religious burdens on people that keep them away from God, about not hoarding our wealth for ourselves, but giving it away, and so many other words of Jesus's. Keeping those words is how we love Jesus. We let those words guide and govern and shape our lives so that more and more the place where we are standing begins to look and feel like the kingdom of God. It looks like a place of flourishing, a place of goodness and truth and beauty and justice. But those words of Jesus are really challenging. I think we all want to live in a world that is shaped by Jesus' words, but we're all really bad at living that way, even for a minute. And Jesus knows this. And so a few verses later, he promises to send the Holy Spirit, who is going to teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Jesus will give us what we need to keep his words. And then Jesus also gives us his peace. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let them be afraid. If you love me, you would rejoice that I'm going to the Father. Jesus expects that discipleship, that a life of being his disciple, is actually a peaceful experience. It's a non-anxious experience. It's even a joyful experience. This work of loving Jesus and keeping his word isn't meant to trouble us or to frighten us, but to actually bring us joy and peace. So it's definitely not an invitation to scrutinize ourselves and our motives and our own purity at every moment and wonder and agonize about whether we're measuring up or whether we're doing enough or whether we're getting it right. Being Jesus' disciple is peaceful. 
It is full of spiritual power from the Holy Spirit. It's an act of love. And it's this invitation into the joy of seeing Jesus' words become lived, little by little, more and more, wherever we actually are. Well, I said a minute ago that there are two parts to this verse about being Jesus' disciples. There's our work and there's God's work. And all of what I've just been talking about is our work. Those who love me will keep my word. But the second part of the verse describes God's work. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. God's work is to love us and to come to us and to make his home with us. And this language of God making a home with us, it runs all through the scriptures today. So for the rest of our time, we're going to look at the text from Joel that Mary Tobin read and that text from Revelation that Chrissy read and just get a better sense of what Jesus means when he says he'll come and make his home with us. Because my hope is that we will end with a sense of how abundant this promise really is that he's giving us, which will enable us to live as those peaceful disciples. So we'll start with the prophet Joel. Now, Joel was writing to people who were living in sort of an apocalyptic wasteland. It probably looked and felt a bit like a war zone because they have just experienced catastrophe after catastrophe. They had this massive plague of multiple kinds of locusts that came through and just stripped every plant bare. And then a drought came. So the soil became dry and hard and lifeless. And then the fires came. And these wildfires just burned out of control. And everywhere, animals and people were starving. And even the worship had stopped because there wasn't enough grain or enough grapes to make bread or wine for the sacrifices. And God calls Joel to prophesy after this. So Joel isn't one of these prophets who goes to the people and says, hey, bad stuff is going to happen if you don't repent. Joel is actually someone who comes in after the bad stuff has happened. And he calls the people to prayer, to lament, to fasting. He helps them give voice to what has just happened and to grieve and to cry out to God to restore everything that's been lost, which is almost everything. And then in the passage that Mary Tobin read today, he gives this picture, this vision of what the restoration of God might look like in the future. And in that vision, every single catastrophe that the people have experienced is reversed. It gets undone. So the soil becomes fertile. The fields become green. Suddenly the trees are bearing fruit again. The storehouses are overflowing. It rains early and late in the day. And then Joel says this. He says, I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army that I sent against you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. 
there's that language of home again. You shall know that I am in the midst of my people. That is the pinnacle of God's restoration in this vision to Joel, this promise to make a home with his people, to be in their midst. And so we see in Joel that God is making his home with his people in this extremely local, in this extremely communal and specific way. He makes his home with a people, and he makes his home in a place. And he heals with this incredibly local specificity, right down to every type of locust whose damage he's going to undo. He's making his dwelling within this ecosystem of humans and insects and animals and soil and weather. And he intends to restore all of it to abundance and to flourishing. And as I sat with the text this week, I found this vision from Joel just particularly helpful. Because even though we have not dealt with locusts or drought or any of those things, as I look back at the past few years, it does feel like catastrophe after catastrophe after catastrophe. And if I look around at the place where we are dwelling, it looks barren. The ground looks hard. There are deep trenches in the ground. And we are in need of deep healing and deep restorative rains. And so I was comforted to imagine that this is the place that God wants to make his home with us, right here where we actually are. Now, finally, if we turn to that uh, passage in Revelation, we get another glimpse of that inbreaking kingdom. John describes this vision of the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, this new city coming down from heaven. And he hears a voice saying this. See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. The home of God is among mortals. And what's interesting here is that it's not this agrarian vision like in Joel. It's a city. And John goes into all this detail. That's why there was that funny leap in the verses that Chrissy read about the layout and the architecture and the building materials and the scale of the city more detail than the Sunday lectionary thought we needed today. But the whole city is just this marvel of divine engineering. And this city is definitely a place where things grow. It's a place of abundance. There is a river that seems to flow through Main Street and a tree that somehow grows on both sides of it and gives fruit every month, a new kind of fruit, and whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. So things grow and flourish and heal in this city, but it's still a city. And listen, I love Wendell Berry. I write bad nature poetry on the regular. I like bird watching. I harbor some sort of farm fantasies. So when I picture heaven, I don't picture a city. I picture something more like the set of all creatures great and small. But that is not the vision that God gives us here. 
And I really love the way Eugene Peterson writes about this in this amazing book that he wrote on Revelation. If you haven't read it, I recommend. He says, the biblical heaven is not a nice environment far removed from the stress of city life. It's the invasion of the city by the city. We enter heaven not by escaping what we don't like, but by the sanctification of the place in which God has placed us. There is not a hint of escapism in St. John's heaven. This is not a long weekend away from the responsibilities of employment and citizenship, but the intensification and healing of them. And it makes sense, because John's revelation was a letter written to seven churches in seven cities, seven communities trying to keep the words of Jesus in places that were full of corruption and exploitation and dehumanization and poverty and violence. And so again, we have this vision of God making his home with people in a place that is extremely local. God is healing these cities with this inbreaking city. And so we can hear in the revelation of John the echo of the words of Jesus from John's gospel. Those who love me will keep my word, and my Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. And wherever that is, <coughs> wherever that is, it becomes this place of healing and of flourishing, this abundant outpost of the kingdom. Well, in just a minute, we'll go into our time of silence. And as we do, I just want to invite you to consider Again, those words of Jesus from the gospel. To ask, where will God's kingdom break into your life as it actually is? Where is God longing to make his home with you where you actually are? Right here. Where can you keep the words of Jesus in some small way? Some very local, very specific way? right here. And where will God bring healing and abundance and flourishing and restoration right where you actually are? So we'll take a minute of silence. 